Hello and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin here with Teos Abadia for another week of D&D Talk. Hey Teos, what's up? Hey Sean, this is the week, I'm telling you, this is the week that we're going to master that dungeon. We are, just the one though. And uh, we do have several. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there'll be other dungeons. Yeah. Yeah, and there probably the will be dungeons. other just... dragons. Yeah, the dragons, the dungeons, so many. Yep. And I'm I'm sort of sad this week because I haven't played D&D in a while. The normal home group I play with, mm. we've been unable to meet because of scheduling conflicts. And so if you if you're a game designer and you're head is always down in those details it can be draining like any job can be no matter how fun uh you, you think it is yeah and that that play sort of rejuvenates you sometimes and there's been a lot of totally. head, heads down design and not a lot of rejuvenation uh so i'm i'm hoping this is my rejuvenation <laughs> for the week Teos. just a your, your oh. mission if you choose to accept it i accept it Okay. Wait, what is, is the mission? <laughs> what is that mission? <laughs> to rejuvenate me. <laughs> to make it so I could go I'm on and rejuvenate you. Okay. Uh, Listeners, join us on this tale of rejuvenation. By the end, Sean's going to be like 15 years old and giggling. So that's uh, great. Well, I'm t generally giggling. <laughs> uh, but that's a whole different thing. Uh, but... Yeah. We we do have some good news uh, this week, so we can uh, we can get our giggles on with the news segment, starting mm -hmm. with the announcement that D&D Live 2021 will see G4 partnering with Wizards of the Coast to provide and stream content. Uh, so that's, that's yeah, exciting. So this we, is the D&D you know, Live. We missed it last year because, at least in person, mm -hmm. uh, because of COVID. It was supposed to take place again in Los Angeles, and that got shut down. So now it's still not going to be an in-person event, but it's going to sort of take a new form. Do you want to talk a little bit about it? Yeah, that'll, it'll be really interesting to see where this goes. Uh, you know, G4 is a, a network that's tied into game streaming, um, and they say, uh, the, the, what they call the 12th level vice president of programming and creative strategy at G4 says, we're thrilled to partner with Wizards of the Coast to give fans adventure, comedy, and incredible an incredibly entertaining journey into the theater of the mind. So, you know, we'll see what this, uh, production level brings to the games, um, it's apparently going to be like last year. We're going to have these streamed games that are going to have a star studded cast. And if any indication of history remains true, we're going to see greater and greater stars showing up. I mean, if Jeff Goldblum's doing random podcasts, anything's possible. So <laughs> yeah, that'll be interesting to see. Yeah. They didn't mention, or at least I didn't see mentioned anything in terms of like organized play or, uh, anything of that nature where you can just sign up to play games. I assume that it's going to happen because it's happened in previous years. Uh, but I thought it was a right. notable absence of reference to at least, you know, one line saying, and also you'll be able to sign up and play. Uh, we'll have to get on uh, Dave Krista Baldman games to see if he is going to be running yeah. things as he has in the past. And as that he does every month for their, uh, monthly game days. Yeah. 
And this event is July 16th to 17th. And then after that, they said after the two days, after those 16th and 17th of July, there will be four all new limited run campaign series to premiere on G4. Mm -hmm. So there's something there going on with, I guess, Wizards partnering with them to sort of have some limited run shows that maybe are being introduced during this D&D Live event and then go on. And, and if anybody doesn't know, we should back up and say D&D Live is where they announce the new storyline, right? So, so th that's part of what makes this huge. So not only is it sort of star-studded and you get to watch really great DMs like Jeremy Crawford and all kinds of other people run really cool games uh, for these star-studded casts, but also you get to get a taste of what the season is so you know we saw like when descent into avernus was announced they would have like deborah on wall running a star-studded table and it's set in hell right so that gets you excited about what might be in the descent into avernus uh and we saw that last year with uh, like the game of thrones cast playing rhyme of the frost maiden so whatever this year's mega adventure is we're gonna see this uh kind of taste here which will be neat and it's also important to note, I think, that G4 is sort of a step up in terms of possibly production quality and in terms of distribution of content. Um, it, mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but G4 is, is actually a, a cable channel or it was a cable channel. Yeah, I, I, I'm not exactly sure on what they they definitely were. I don't know if they still are. Yeah. So we'd have to look that up. Because I but went to yeah, the, and I, so that is probably part of it to be a larger audience. Yeah. You know, it's not just on YouTube; it's also on G4, and I'm sure it'll also be on YouTube and all that. So yeah. a bigger audience would be potentially exposed to this. Yeah. So I went to the G4 website yeah. to try to f figure out, and the, you know, they talk about being connected to NBC Universal, but I. Yeah, I there couldn't find information yeah. on here's our, you know, here's our channel. Here's, and it, they seem to be going through some sort of rebranding or relaunch. So it, it'll be interesting to see what, uh, you know, what the breadth and the reach of this content becomes by partnering with, with G4. Um, you know, is this a first step into getting onto the next step up in terms of, you know, cable channels. Can we get on sci-fi? Can we get on NBC? You know, those, uh, right. Right. Know, or one of NBC's several, you know, their streaming service. Can we get on Peacock from, from this? You know, do you know what I say to all that, Sean? What do you say to us? Give me a D and D cartoon. And uh, that's what I say. That, Give me just that D and D cartoon that's how you get on these things. I don't care if it's on Netflix, on NBC, on whatever, but give me a new D&D &D cartoon, family-friendly, bring everybody in, get them super excited. That's how you do it. Okay. And you have the mugs and the T-shirts and the McDonald's Happy Meal. That's and my the, plan. And the salami. Don't forget the D&D <laughs> salami. Branded salami. Yep. I think it was bologna, but yeah. Oh, Branded bologna. D&D branded bologna in Spain. That's, any, that's what we need. Any of your lunch meats will do. I mean, it's what we deserve. It is true, uh, especially you and I. <laughs> when you've gamed all day. Yes. See, this is how you rejuvenate. You get oh, yourself a pack of D&D baloney. Baloney. And you just eat that, and that just fills you with these nitrates that empower you. It's like and a then, superhero story. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll, 
yeah. definitely mutate into something <laughs> different. And then if you could throw some, uh, you know, some uh, Magic the Gathering branded Swiss cheese, you, you've got it made. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't really better than that. Speaking of. Yeah, speaking of Magic the Gathering, the Forgotten Realms set of Magic the Gathering cards has been previewed. Um, Greg Tito himself, the man, came on uh, to share some of the cards, went on the Magic stream. Um, what what did you notice from, from this stream? Um, I mean, so one thing is just it's, it's always good to see, are you getting kind of a proper respect from from your partner right even though magic is in the same building it's all part of wizards of the coast like this was what you'd want to see right uh, one the person who runs the magic stream the person who runs the DD stream like they're both there and they're both having a lot of fun sharing these cards and giving previews and they showed a showed off a beholder card a vorpal sword which has the possibility of wounding you to the point where you lose the game like it literally cuts your head off and you're done <laughs> um a portable hole a halfling prosperous innkeeper and then we got to see a commander card for tiamat that was you know had people in chat going whoa that's strong um so it gets the full treatment. I mean, just like any set of magic these days, they had alternate look cards. So they showed one that had a background that sort of looks like bookish, parchment-ish. Um, they had you know full full uh, bleed cards where the art goes all the way to the edges. Uh, they're going to be commander decks. Like it's going to be the full shebang. Um, so there's a there's an article in our show notes show notes that um, we link to that that shows off the art. So you can check that out. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really neat. It was, it was a good stream and, uh, I think made a lot of people excited to, to get this set. Yeah. Did they mention at all? I didn't see this. So did, did they mention at all about teaching D and D players who've never played magic, how to play or sort of, you know, any sort of on road for them? Cause I'm interested now, you know, I, I've played in the past, yeah. but I'm not an expert in any way. You throw out words, you know, like foil deck or but i don't even know if that's a thing but mm -hmm. you know you throw those words out, i have no idea what that means so uh yeah you know i i i'm interested now but i can't take the time to you know become the full right. magic gathering expert and i'm wondering if there's any plans for that that you've heard of that'll be interesting to see in part because they have magic now has this uh cross-platform online presence through what's called arena and when you go on to that, in order to get started, you must go through the tutorial. I mean, maybe you can skip it, but you probably don't because you get cards out of it. And that teaches you how to play, right? So it's one of those things where it's like, oh, look, you, you, know, you get a free pack. Let's open it up. Oh, look, a foil card. It's like the normal card, but it looks cool. Uh, you know, maybe you want to collect it. Um, tap to use its powers, that sort of stuff. It walks you through all those things. Okay. And they might see that as very much their on-ramp. Mm -hmm. um, magic is one of those things that can be super simple when you're playing a intro deck and you're just doing the very basic things or running through one of those tutorials, or you can pull up the big, uh, user manual and go like, oh, wow, look at all these keywords and all these things. And so it can be very overwhelming, but, but there are a lot of ways to approach it. And, and so that it's not, uh, mm -hmm. but it's a great question. Will, will they do something specifically for D and D players? I love your idea. My gut says no, they'll forget yeah. to do that, even though it's so important. But yeah, I mean, and I would love to see at conventions, like, 
you know, even these virtual conventions, something that brings in the magic player and something that gets the D and D player who's already there to learn about how to play magic. Right. That yeah. would be great. Yeah. Super. Well, I'm, I'm in, I'm ready. Put me in coach. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to buy too many cards. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, so the summer camp that we that's wish we had, the summer camp we wish we had the Academy of adventures. Uh, so you're friends with uh, Richard Molina Weber, yes? You you know him? Yeah, absolutely. I, okay. He used to live in Portland, uh, and so, yeah, came many times. Fantastic guy. All right. So tell me about this Academy of Adventures that he runs. So I forget if this is the second or third time he's kickstarting this, but the first Kickstarter was in 2020, and he had this crazy idea of, I want to run a and d summer camp for kids where kids learn how to play D&D, and they master all the concepts and get super excited about creative writing and creative thinking and, and all the, and, and just playing RPGs. And so this, he's again, running a Kickstarter. Uh, it ends June 2nd. So you've got plenty of time to, to back this. And if you know anybody who's ages 11 to 15, this is a fantastic thing. You, you sign up and you have five days of fun after that's done. You can sign up again. He usually has sort of continuing classes that people can do. Richard is an amazing teacher. He's a former uh, math teacher. He's taught at various school levels. Um, he is excellent at doing this. I've, I've, I've recorded once a couple of like, what are my favorite monster videos that he used in the class. And it, it's just a great. Uh, he's a great guy and this is a great, uh, program. So highly recommended. If you know anyone in these ages, 11, 15, get the word to them on how to join the Academy of Adventures. I want to go to this summer camp. I know, right? Yeah, that would be awesome. But since I can't, I might as well get on to roll 20 and play some games. <laughs> and now that, uh, Bianca Bickford has put up a series of tips for DMs who want to increase their capabilities of running games through Roll20. I can do that. So uh, I think Bianca now works for Roll20 officially. And uh, so her blog post talks about, you know, everything you need to know if you're a DM and you want to run games online. And so and there's a link in our show notes um, that, goes to the blog.roll20.net where you can find this uh, list of tips. Yeah, it's, it's pretty neat. I like this idea. And, and she's using the forums of Roll20 as a way to sort of demonstrate the collective knowledge of the forums. Um, so you kind of get these tips that are given there, but then also links to, to the forums where people are, are providing additional information. And I'm, I'm always impressed when I play at these D&D virtual weekends, you know, some of these DMs, like their mastery of Roll20, right? When, when you do this, because some people have been running games on there for a really long time, and they are so good at it now. They know all these ways to automate things and apply conditions and, you know, change things up and reveal things and hide things. And, and they just goes back and forth. And, and it's really neat. Uh, and you say you're casting a particular spell and they drop into a template down and all these kinds of things. And so that kind of, or they bring you in on exciting landing pages. That's one of uh, Bianca's tips is, you know, have a cool landing page where you start. And 
it really makes a huge difference. You, know, you show up and it's like Rhyme of the Frost Maiden logo and, and there's like a wind howling playing in the background and you're like, oh, okay, I'm ready to play this game. <laughs> so, yeah, there's great tips. And I think for, for, for people like me who are, who are still pretty basic on Roll20, it's a nice way to encourage us to do more. Yeah, I'll I'll have to see how many of these tips I, I could use and it's probably many of them. Yeah, right. Now, now we hear from the Arcane Library on Imagine First, Design Second. So what was this blog about? So Kelsey Dion, uh, who runs the Arcane Library, has a, a blog that you can sign up through her mailing list. And I highly recommend it because um, it, 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 she provides some really valuable things uh, to people who follow her mailing list. And this one is a kind of neat sort of behind-the-scenes look at a time when... Uh, they're designing an adventure and kind of we're like, oh, this just isn't working and, and peeling back to say, why wasn't it working? And, and it has to do with uh, when you over-design something because you're thinking as a designer and you're thinking mechanically and then you're thinking about sort of these different objectives that are sort of very design focused rather than stepping back and, and really starting with the imagination. And so the idea is, Sometimes when we're hitting the wall and it's not working, step back and think through what is it that makes this cool? Um, what is it that, that excites us about this encounter? And sort of go back and feed off of that vision directly. Um, there are a number of tips, both in the story of sort of how this happened. Uh, and then there's a kind of uh, bulleted and numbered section where Kelsey walks through different things you can do to be inspired. Um, and think and, and make that imagination step work well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's such simple advice, imagine first, design second, but it's so powerful. And, you know, finishing up the, the writing for role-playing games class that I just taught, I wish I had highlighted this. I highlighted it, but not in, in mm -hmm. so few words. And... Often, you know, especially as you grow in your design chops, you sort of move through steps. You know, your first step is you have this great idea, but you don't know how to mechanically incorporate it. And then once you learn that, everything becomes mechanical. And, <laughs> and so you, you yeah. start thinking in, in terms of that. And it's that conflict between you know, the fun and the flavor and, and the, the balance that we talk about when we review most of the things yeah. we review that is, uh, that is always pulling at you. And the faster you can iterate in your mind between those two things, bringing in your imagination and then mechanizing that into solid uh, mechanical foundations is so important. Uh, and this, this article uh, I didn't read the whole thing, but I, I skimmed it enough to know that it does a great job of giving, you know, both inspiration as well as some solid, you know, solid design tips to, to make it work. Yeah. And I think two thoughts that I had when I was reading this article, one was uh, a player on the player's side. There was a player that I used to play Living Greyhawk with a lot. And they were pretty quiet and reserved and sort of felt like they were very mechanical. And then one time after a game, they started talking to me about their character. And they had this amazing 
backstory and personality insight into their character. And I, and I had to say, I was like, you know, I never see this at the table. And he was flabbergasted. Like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you don't kind of really like speak in character that much or, or talk about these things. I had no idea your character had all this depth. And they're like, really? I guess it's all in my head. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of thing that when we're writing encounters, sometimes in our head, we really see this vision of what the encounter is going to be like, but we must find a way to convey that, right? Otherwise it's not there. It's just in our heads. Right. And sometimes encounters fall flat, I think, because they don't bring out that, you know, they, you don't get that feel. And I love one of my sources of information that I love is the the old um, articles that would be in like Dungeon or Dragon magazines that would have like a list of like say fifteen wacky shopkeepers or mm -hmm. twelve interesting things in a forest, and a lot those things are like it's things you know. And, and Kelsey talks about them here. Like she ends with sort of like see the black glass mountain towering overhead like a rearing leviathan, smell the sultry jungle mist, redolent with flowers and the stench of nearby corpses, uh, feel the rat bones pop beneath your boots as you stalk across the damp flag zones. Like those kinds of ideas are really yeah. cool, but you want to get your players to experience them too because that's when, when they're, they're like, oh, this is so interesting, right? How, how do they know that they're chopping through vines to clear through the thick jungle, right? Like, yeah, yeah. With, with the monster design yeah. that I've been seeing, uh, you know, I often have to go back and say, this monster, this is a cool idea. Um, you know, what does it look like? <laughs> right. Because it's, <laughs> it, it's so, yeah. it's so there mechanically, right. All the parts are in place. Everything is balanced nicely. You know, it's fun to run, which is important, but also how, you know, how do the characters interact with it? What do they see? What does yeah. the box text of this monster look like and smell yeah. like and, 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 you know, all of that. And it's, so it's important when you are designing something to constantly be switching back and forth between that sort of right point, right brain, left brain dynamic, of, you know, creative yeah. and, and then um, mechanical. Yeah, and I think things like monsters, because you're working with the stat blocking, sort of trick you into being like, what should its strength be, and what should mm -hmm. uh, its damage expression and hit points. But, but the most important part is is how it's going to feel like what it is to the players. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's the true yeah. the true challenge of monster design, right? And you have to be willing and able to change one to fit the other. So you imagine this monster. Then you design it, and then you realize, wait a second, I can't quite do what I want to do. So then go back and let your imagination re rethink. Oh, its strength its strength is going to be low. So what is it? How does that change what it looks like? And then go mm -hmm. forward, and then maybe change some mechanics based on a new reimagining of of the monster. So yeah, all of it works together. Yeah. Uh, when you're firing on all cylinders, um, it it one side always informs the other. And yeah. I love things like, um, things like a big shark or like a big ogre giant kind of thing. They tend to not have the highest attack rolls, but mm -hmm. 
but they do this devastating damage when they do hit, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a way of showing that sort of, you know, if you think of the huge giant that kind of is always just barely missing you, but boy, if right. that hits, that's going to, you know, and, and that's what it's all about is you're trying to dodge because when that one blow comes in, it's going to be so much damage. Yep, yep. And that's a, a fun way of communicating that. Right, and the same thing with, like, armor. If you, do, if you have a monster mm -hmm. that does a lot of damage but you want it to be a slightly lower cr you have to lower its armor class well how does that change the way it looks um, it's not going to have armor then okay so what what does it wear um, it's <laughs> it's going to be very clumsy then because it's going to have a low dexterity so how does that change you know your imagining of it that's cool and yeah it's it's yeah. Uh, I, I i love that topic and you know imagine first design second yeah, that's great it's such a beautiful way to say it and speaking of yeah, designing, really <laughs> speaking of designing, next Friday, uh, May 21st at noon, I will be on Nerdarchy Live. I'll be talking with Nerdarchist Dave, who I've talked to before, uh, about the Monster Grimoire Kickstarter that we're doing with Ghostfire Gaming, as well as some other topics. And I love talking with the folks at Nerdarchy there. Yeah, uh, their website is yeah. great. Their videos are wonderful. This sort of live uh, lunchtime chat that they do is, it's you great. know, has some great people on it. You've been on there, right? I, I, think I have. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they're super fun to talk to. Yep. Yeah. So uh, I'll be t I'll be there. If you ha are free at noon Eastern time, uh, feel free to drop by. They, you know, they do it live. There's a chat there if you want to ask questions. And it's funny because we're doing the the live chat on the 21st at noon, and the Kickstarter ends the following day at 10 a.m. Um, so that'll be the Ooh, sort of one last cool. push for the Monster Grimoire Kickstarter that we're doing. Um, that is right. zapping. So everybody, you have until May 22nd. You've, yeah. you've got to back this. That's right. Get out there. I'll be I'll be doing my best begging routine on. Um, on March, uh, May 21st. So you be there just for that to, to see, to see Sean Gravel. Fantastic. Yep. That's worth it. That's it, worth the price. It, worth the price of admission every time. If it's free. I think and, by the time this airs, I'll have been on a thing, mm -hmm. but I, uh, I can't talk about it yet, but uh -oh. I'll, I think, yeah, probably on, I think on Wednesday I might've been on something. Okay. I'll say this before Wednesday. So, <laughs> so but, go yeah. to the thing that Teos can't tell you about being it. on, and uh, and I'm sure it'll be wonderful. Check my Twitter feed Tuesday or Wednesday, I guess, but I, you now either already did or didn't. So I hope you liked it. So we we hope we hope you liked the thing that Teos <laughs> was on that we can't tell you about, but it's already happened. Sweet. Exactly. Uh, I love podcast time. That's how it is. <laughs> and. Now, let's talk Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. We are getting to the end of our of our look at Tasha's, and we've decided to give a significant amount of time to Chapter 2, which is on group patrons. Uh, this was a concept that they talked about first in uh, the Eberron book, I believe. Eberron. And then they uh, reprinted it and expanded it in Tasha's. And... It's it's really a great topic, uh, not just in how it's presented, but in what it means to the game of D&D to have something like this available to you, both as the DM, as a tool for storytelling, and as players, 
uh, as a as a means, both uh, rules and story, to to make your your campaign and your character everything it can be. So, uh, let's yeah, talk I about love this. That mm-hmm. Great, great concept. Yeah. So go ahead. Why don't you start us off with uh, with sort of what they present? Sure. So what they do in this book is they give us eight example patrons. And each of these patrons has an overview of the types of organizations the patron represents. They give us perks. Often they're sort of contacts or ways that we are getting our information, our quests and so on. And then we finally get a a, a group of quests. Typically we're getting like a table of D6 options that we could roll for these things. But I think they're primarily meant there to be really for you to choose from them um, and, and choose the ones that you like. You can, you're encouraged early on to customize the patrons to reflect specific organizations. So you could take something that is a broader category and say, well, actually it's going to be the Harpers or it's going to be the Zentarum, right? If I'm playing in Forgotten Realms campaign. Um, and so they, they make the point that these provided patrons are starting points. Like maybe it's a criminal organization. Cool. We can use the rules for criminal organization. But if we make them the Zentarum, now it has a campaign piece there. Or if it's your own world, you can you know choose one that's appropriate and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting um, to it's interesting just, to I'm sorry. It's interesting to think about what is the difference in Wizards of the Coast Mines between a patron and a faction. Uh, <laughs> and, and and I think uh, I think maybe none. I don't well, know. Yeah, it's because I, I was trying to think of that uh, as I was reading this originally, which was a while ago. And, you know, I think a faction sort of is a part of the world, a larger part of the world than, than a patron is. Mm. I think a patron, if you talk about stories going from starting in the known and going into the unknown, a, a patron is sort of like a character in that it's a smaller entity and within it, you know, what's going on, but it sends you out into the world. Whereas the Harpers are large enough that you go from one city to another, you could run into the Harpers in this other city. Whereas the patron is is a little bit more limited. Um, Although, you know, depending on the size of the faction or the size of your patron or your patron group, um, it, it could be similar. Yeah, and I think that's why they suggest that it, you could make them something like the Harpers or not, because you're, you're right, a faction is sort of like a recognizable entity, the kind of a big mover or shaker, and these need not be. This can be a noble family or a thieves' guild at a, that's just in the local city. And I, and I think a lot of it's about the story you want to tell, and that's the real point of these patrons, right, is that they are here to add depth to the campaign story that we're telling. And that's why this is a great tool, right? Because we can give the players a unifying concept that is better than just the like wizard in a tower or the, you know, local Lord. It has more meat. And I think it, it's the kind of thing that conforms to the type of storytelling that D and D is increase, increasingly trying to tell. It's a little less like the random, uh, you know, like an adventure. It would say, like barrier peak starts with you're in, I forget which city, but, you know, an area of Greyhawk and, and the Lord just says, hey, there's been weird disturbances, head out there. And, and you never see that Lord again. Off mm-hmm. you go to the adventure, right? Right. But we're increasingly seeing that campaigns are more like, you know, it's the city of Baldur's Gate that cares about this. 
and you are developing a bit more of a relationship. And I won't be surprised if over time we see more and more of that emphasis where it really is you are bound to this group and this cause and the relationships change um, over time so that you see that and feel that more, you have a greater stake in it, right? A greater relationship yeah. with these entities. Yeah, it's funny because one of the one of the issues that home game DMs have, at least in my experience, is getting all the players on the same page in terms of what their characters want. So providing a yeah. patron right up front puts everyone on the same footing at least. And then if there is conflict, that conflict can be told in, in, in a background where it's not necessarily player against player. It's more player against this sort of expectation. And you can tell better stories where it's the wizard or the rogue wants to steal everything where the paladin wants to save everybody. If you're all working for the, uh, the, you know, Academy of, of greatness, uh, you, right. you can, you can, you can let the Academy be the uh, point of conflict rather than the rogue versus the paladin. There's sort of a buffer there. Yeah. And it tends to make, it makes your campaign writing much easier as a DM because you, you have this larger arc that, that almost writes itself, right? Because they're doing these things. And, and this reminds me of when we were at the dream stage for the Ashes of Athos, uh, Dark Sun organized play campaign for 4E. Uh, Chris Sims was initially part of the group because he, he at that point didn't have <laughs> too much time. So before he had to go, what he really did to bless the campaign is that we were trying to think of like, well, how do we, you know, Darkson can be a little bit where people can get the sort of player versus player idea. They can be feeling a little more sort of evilish or dark world. Um, how do we kind of get unite them? But also, what's the proper story to tell here? Mm -hmm. And he said, well if we make everybody a member of the Veiled Alliance, which is the secret uh, wizard arcane organization that's that's outlawed, uh, if we make them all part of this, now they've got a reason to be together. Mm -hmm. And really the story write it, started writing itself as we were like, okay, well then their organization is being threatened. We're, we all know that they're now the good guys because they've, they've got a reason why they're working for the you know, the Veiled Alliance. And it just began to happen for us. And we could, through the rest of the campaign, tell this Veiled Alliance story while telling a Dark Sun story. And it was the best. I mean, that was the gold that he, he gave us. It was just yeah. to, to set us on that path. And this is what patrons do for you too, right? Right. Chris, Chris is a very smart man. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And He's so smart. And it, it's, it's, yeah. it's uh, similar. A similar story is the Zendrick Expeditions campaign where we had four faction masters who we were telling, it was essentially four different campaigns within the one campaign where you had, you know, the, the good, good guys, the light, you had sort of the bad guys, uh, you had the military guys, and then you had the uh, Crimson Codex, which was mine, which was like, we're going to, we're going to solve puzzles and <laughs> yay uh, for puzzles. But, you know, in a sense, you could the players could choose to uh, work. You could play in one or none or all of those factions, and mm -hmm. that, it, it did similarly. It worked great because 
everyone had the same goal and you could play against type, but you at least were all moving in the same direction. And it became even more obvious why that was important when we had the adventures where all the factions could play together. And there was instantly, as soon as you sat down at the table, tension. And I, I'm, I'm not talking <laughs> yeah. about like in character fun tension. I mean, you know, remember, everyone wanted to play in the evil faction. And as soon as they sat down to play these core, you know, all factions together adventures, they were just horrible human beings um, to everyone else <laughs> because they had that excuse of now we're not working together and we're going to show you what yeah. we can do if you let us. Uh, so it's, it's yeah. And the adventures had that aspect of a secret for one group, but not another. And so it created that sort of rivalry and, and yeah. which is amazing when you artificially assign people to groups, right? They really do rally, but that's true in a home campaign too. You, you, you know, even though you, don't, you just have one group, but suddenly you have a membership and you care about this group. And now you can do things like threaten the group or threaten it from within, reveal something that shakes the group. Like all those things become super interesting. Um, and far easier to write because if, if you're like, if you think about like, oh, it's a city campaign and I want to show that something is shaking up the government, like that isn't necessarily very tangible to the players, but if they are part of that government in some way, mm -hmm. right? If they're, if they are part of a, um, you know, some ministry, if that's their organization and now the ministry is impacted, they suddenly have a real stake in it and they'll care about it. And, and yeah, I love the concept of patrons. We should yeah. probably get into the mechanics of it at some point. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> no, I, the last thing I was going to mention before we do that was if I think back over the last I don't know, eight campaigns that I've either run or played in, um, not talking about organized play, just home campaigns, most of them have either outright by default or implicitly uh, this sort of patron grouping uh, acquisitions incorporated being, you know, they're, they're a patron. Sure. Uh, that's, that's what they do. Yep. And, and for the ones that we haven't had that sort of grouping, we weren't part of a monastery. We weren't all related by blood was weaker for it. in in a lot of ways that, yeah. Not just because of the story, but because of like the in jokes that you could make from that, right? That that could that connection yeah. adds a lot in in so many ways. Many of which we are about to talk about. Yeah. All right. So the patrons uh, early on they have the, a, a rule that's sort of a core rule. Uh, so regardless of what your patron is like, you have this rule, and it's called group assistance. Uh, having a group patron gives an adventuring group a common purpose, which requires better coordination in the form of guidance and, in, and encouragement, or it inspires that. So because of this, each member of the party can grant advantage to an ability check, attack roll, or saving throw of another member of the party. To do this, they must be able to see each other and hear each other, uh, or see or hear each other, and neither can be incapacitated. And once you give it to another character, you cannot give it again until you finish a long rest. So basically once per day, everybody has an inspiration token they can give to someone else. Mm -hmm. Except inspiration is an advantage, but we're, we're, we'll, we'll just forget that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it is, it is a, so this is kind of your core way of saying, hey, you get a, right off the bat, you get this benefit because you're all working together. Um, not bad, especially I think if DMs are kind of like, hey, it's hard to get people to use 
um, you know, a sort of, yeah, this is not actually inspiration, but if you, if you're seeing inspiration right. not being used a lot, here's like an extra advantage you can yeah. give out this way. No, I, and, and that's a, that's a great idea, especially with how, uh, haphazard inspiration can be remembered by certain DMS, you know, some it's something mm -hmm. that the player always has some DMS never give it. So having it laid out this nicely and explicitly, uh, is easy for the players to remember as well as the DMs. And I would say for this, it's good for inspiration as well, but for this, I would get a particular token, like get a campaign coin or some kind of neat thing. Like uh, when I ran Tomb of Annihilation, I bought some plastic skulls uh, that were at a Halloween discount store sale and gave each person a skull. And that was the, you have this, you can give it to someone else uh, or use it yourself. And that kind of a physical thing that they can see or a token in an online platform that will help them remember that they've got this group assistance feature. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. And so then patrons also get perks. You'll, those vary by, by patrons and then assignments or quests that are given out. And I've got to say that a lot of times when I read these kinds of, uh, where, you know, every, there's a, a series of things like when we talked about environments in Tasha and it was sort of like, Oh, every environment has this and that kind of structure. And then you read it and they all feel sort of very similar. And this is a case where I think there is a lot of, I really love the writing of, of, of these group patrons. Like they have this common format of the concept, the perks, the quests and so on, but it's a demonstration of how well the structure works that the structure here is often just really giving you great ideas so you can tell great stories rather than just being a sort of, I don't know, useless flame framework. And it mm -hmm. all feels kind of like the same, like here really it drives the difference of these patrons and I like it a lot. Yeah. So let's, uh, uh, let's go through one or two of them just to give an example, just to give examples of what they do, how they're the same, but more importantly, as you said, how they're different. So the first one that they give is the Academy. So the concept for this is it is some sort of institution of learning. Uh, Hogwarts, the uh, college or a university, a mages uh, guild college, a royal academy, any, uh, any assemblage of scholars and truth seekers can function as an academy. Uh, so the uh, in in Eberron, there was the is it the Diggers Union uh, is sort yeah. of a mm -hmm. it's attached to to a university, um, so that could yeah. be an, an academy like uh, thing. Yeah, and you can see why this started. If you know the Eberron campaign setting, you, you can see why this started as an Eberron concept because they have uh, the major houses and then they have these academic institutions and these different group you know, nations and stuff like that. So it, it works really well, but it can work equally well as we see from sort of the Hogwarts concept and everything. It can work anywhere. And so let's look at uh, anything else with the concept that we wanted to mention. Well, they give us these, uh, you know, again, with these tables, they give us the academy types. And so they, they provide boarding school, very Hogwarts. Arcane Enclave, Secret Monastery, Elite Institute, Vault of Secrets, Museum of Dreams. And e each one comes with a little sentence or two describing it. 
um, that can give you ideas. And so that's where you could, you can really see like, oh yeah, you know, like at first I think, oh, it's an academy, but then I realized it could be a really, uh, you could have 10 academies and they're all fairly different depending on how you set them up. Right. Yeah. Like a monastery would be very different than an arcane academy would be different than a, a gladiatorial academy. Um, all of those things would not only train you differently, but have different objectives that you are provided for when you go out into the world. Yeah. And, and the idea of more of like a boarding school gives you one type of, you know, if you think of this as a movie, that's one type of movie, mm. but elite Institute where everybody's at the top of their game and getting in is super difficult and advancing is super difficult and competitive. Well, that's a whole nother thing. So yeah. And you can, yeah. So there, there are a lot of really neat ideas here. Mm -hmm. um, and then we get into the perks. You want to share some of those? Yep. So the perks for the Academy include compensation. So the Academy will pay you for the work that you do, which sets a, a lifestyle for you initially a modest lifestyle. Um, or if you don't want to use that uh, sort of everyday giving money uh, routine, you can provide bounties for every discovery, every bit of treasure returned. So it's more of a uh, episodic compensation rather than a mm -hmm. uh, ongoing compensation. Yeah. Any, I like that, that alternative. Like that's, that's neat to think of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's neat. Uh, they have documentation. So each member of your group is, uh, you receive identification showing that you're part of this academy. And so that can be something like a background might give you the ability to have, you know, food and shelter when you go into a town that has a thieves guild or that, ha or your noble that knows who you are. This sort of documentation might give you special status or give you access to places that you otherwise wouldn't be able to enter. Um, although having such identification may backfire on you depending on where you uh, flash your badge, as it were. True, yeah. And that's kind of fun, right? That can get you into, like, rival organization issues if you flash it at a tavern. But it can also explain why you can go into the magically destroyed area of town or something like that. And so a lot of neat ideas there with yeah. that. Yeah. Another perk is research. Uh, while research is part of your group's job, your patron has resources to facilitate such efforts. You can call in a favor to delegate that research work, like the downtime activity uh, described in Player's Handbook and Xanathar's Guide to Everything and the Acquisitions Incorporated book uh, to a colleague, <laughs> yeah. uh, contact librarian or research assistant. You have to cover the expenses uh, of this research and the DM will determine its success or failure. And so this is where we get to something that I find intriguing and slightly troubling, which is we have backgrounds like Sage or librarian that their th whole thing is this. And so mm -hmm. it's good to have the option there of things happening off screen but depending on how you like your campaign to run, you may want to restrict that a little bit uh, to to let the player and the player's character have the spotlight when it's their thing rather than just doing it off screen. 
And I think with downtime, it's not that hard in that downtime is technically something anyone can try. But so if you say, I'm going to use the research downtime activity, you know, anyone can try that. The wizard should get advantage, right? Or the, the person with the sage background, or if, if someone who's, you know, where the topic applies, then that's where you give them advantage on those checks because they're particularly good at this, right? right. Um, and I, I would have loved a little more guidance here because downtime is something that is so great, but it isn't used often in the rules. So I love that it's mentioned here, but it would have been really cool if they'd given you a little more. I know it's always hard to fit in the words, but to give you a little more to, to help DMs think through how to do this. Mm -hmm. And to say things like, this is great for players and groups that don't want to worry about downtime. They just want to go on the next adventure and fight the next thing. So this is where you use this. Uh, if players love yep. doing this sort of downtime research and, and thinking through how their characters are going to spend that time, then give them options because of this patron, but don't take away uh, you know, that, right. that fun for them. And I think in general, that's something that is hard for DMs to envision. And that's why we put it specifically, you see it in the Acquisitions Incorporated adventure to, to showcase how you do that, where the chapter of the adventure ends. There are a number of sort of questions that were raised, secrets that were uncovered, and they don't tell you the full story. And that's when you have a little time off to do your downtime. And if you're a member of a patron like this academy, that's a perfect fit, right? Where the adventures you're, the stories you're telling in these adventures should often end on sort of a mystery, right? Like you uncover some sort of uh, information on a long lost cult. Hey, we're an academy. Well, let's research this. And as you're researching it, you find out, oh, look, you know, here are these various clues. Now we can follow those to go to the next step. And it validates the type of organization you are. And now on the other hand, if we were a criminal or, or patronage that we're following, that might be where we go speak to, you know, this master thief, right? Find the master thief and ask them, you know, about this vault that you heard about. And now you can learn what you need to go on to the next part of the adventure. And that yeah. is super fun when you do it that way. Yep. Yep. Uh, they also I would have liked that to be a little more here. Yeah. I, I think that would have been helpful. Even just give the highlights of, of what you said in how the campaign can be, uh, that rug really brings the, the whole campaign together. Uh, no. Uh, yeah, bring <laughs> the campaign together using those things. Uh, so th they also provide resources and training at the academy. So you can use the downtime to you know, gain proficiency in certain skills, training in languages, musical instruments, mm -hmm. and so on. And they also talk about an academy contact. So that is... You know, someone who, when you talk to uh, people at the academy, who are you dealing with? And they give a nice D6 table of sort of the harried functionary, the celebrated instructor, the wizened fixture, the infatuated tourist. You know, these these different uh, ways to yeah. make the uh, to make the academy uh, come to life by by putting a persona in on it. I like that idea. Um, this, I think this is a very clever, you know, very few words that can accomplish a lot where you, you, you encourage the DM to use this contact. And it's really great because now you have some, just with that little description, some ideas uh, on how to have the, the main face that they interact with. 
And then you can do all the great things that happen in like good TV shows and movies where one time your contact isn't there and someone else is there. Right. right? And what yeah. happened to the contact? Right. Like, the, yep. oh, and then everybody goes, wait, what? Like, yeah. where's, you know, where's Timothy? Oh, Timothy had to uh, leave on a mission. Right. Yeah. We haven't seen Timothy. We haven't you know, seen like, Timothy in two ten days. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and they also give, yeah. give Academy factotum roles. So these are roles that the characters can play within the Academy itself. Uh, so they like a role as a student. Well, if you're an acolyte or an artisan or a noble or an outlander, you know, they give the various backgrounds where you might be a student. But then they do, uh, you know, other roles, groundskeeper, professor, researcher, financier, <laughs> you know, an expert speaker. So your role at the academy might not be an enrollee. It could be any of those things. And I love like groundskeeper, right? The the, yeah, the, really the lunch lady, right? I mean, it's it's uh, <laughs> right. That's yeah, perfect. It, it's a great way to put a spin on why the barbarian is is uh, involved in this academy. Oh well, <laughs> I just happen to have been working here, uh, you know, as a guard, as as yeah. a groundskeeper. As, Love it. Yep, and and that that's a great way to not only get everyone together who might be of diverse backgrounds, uh, but to, to play up the, the differences between characters, even within an organization. Do you want to talk yeah, about it's the excellent. quest? Really fun design. Sure. So uh, you get it for all of these patrons that you get inspiration on the types of quests that they'll be sent out on. So academies have research missions based on their focus and they struggle against rivals. So we get a table of six quests. Um, aberrant zoology, document, capture, or explain unnatural beings. Perfect. Arcanodynamics, investigate magic or harness it. Forbidden history, lost truths or dark of the darkest ages. Cryptogeography, and I love the language, right? Like we're getting like course titles almost, right? right? Uh, proof of hidden lands or incorrect assumptions. Restorative antiquarianism, plundered <laughs> artifacts, restore them to their rightful items. Now we're like Indiana Jonesing it. Yep. Uh, evolutionary divinity, explain what no mortal was meant to know regarding the origins <laughs> of divinity. I, this is just such great stuff, right? Like hats off to whoever wrote that. Like, just yeah. And really it, great. you know, it's, it's good advice and it's presented in a great way to uh, show the various options and to trigger DMs to you know, inspire themselves to create their own bits like this. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. So let's talk about, let's talk about another patron. That's very, very different, which is the ancient being. As Tasha says, anytime an unfathomable, powerful entity sweeps in and offers godlike rewards in return for just a few teensy favors, it's a scam. Unless it's me, I'd never <laughs> lie to you, reader dearest, says Tasha. So, uh, for an ancient <laughs> being, your group is bound to the designs of an ancient being of tremendous power and influence. You might serve as the creature's eyes and ears in the world, carrying information back to it. Or perhaps you work as its direct agent, enacting its will. Whether you chose this arrangement or were tricked into it, you can count on the strange resources of your benefactor as long as you serve its purpose. 
And we got this table of six uh, possible ancient beings, Elder Dragon, Lich, Bound Fiend, Guardian Celestial, the Endless, Primal Manifestation. And uh, I like that it covers a lot of different permutations here. I mean, I thought of just all kinds of movies where at some point, uh, you know, even the absurd like Golden Child, right, with Eddie Murphy, right. where behind the screen is this sort of naga creature or later this sort of this, this sort of golden entity like you know there can be it can be something like that that's sort of mysterious but is more divine and kind than being evil mm -hmm. um or it can be evil if you want i mean you, you have to sort of explain why your campaign is is going this way but uh but it's neat and things like primal manifestation, right? It could be something that's in the forest and you're all elves. Like there are a lot of ways that this can play out to make for a really uh, diverse approach. And I, I like how this is done. I just think it's great, great design. There's a lot of flexibility here. I, I read this table and I think of three different campaigns I would immediately enjoy starting to work on Yeah, <laughs> to design. Yeah. And and it's it's even more notable because it is almost the opposite of the academy, right? The academy is very rigid. The academy is everything in its place, and it's all about knowledge. And we know what we're doing, and we're sending you out to gain more knowledge or to use the knowledge we have. Whereas the ancient being is mystical, and it's unknown. And you're, you're not quite sure, probably, what you're working for. And if you're working for good or evil yeah. or anything in between, and so there's this whole there's this whole chaotic nature to it, uh, and so you have to work a little harder, I think, on tying everyone to this patron uh, because it's unknown. There, if if you give some players this sense that they may not know what's going on in the background, they they rail against that because they want to control their yeah. own story. So you have to be willing to to you know work with your players and let them know that this is going to be the uh this is going to be the thing uh that that is going to bring everyone together. So you have to sort of bear with it, become part of the story rather than fighting against the story. And I don't know if this gets you revitalizing or not, Sean, but, you know, like I read this description of the option of the endless. This person has lived many lifetimes because they can't die, at least not permanently. No matter the cause of their demise, they return. To all appearances, they're alive and mortal, but they control the amassed resources of, of an immortal. And I think of like one time where Chris Perkins was talking about the start and adventure and how you can turn a trope on its head. And like, you know, it starts in a tavern and this wizard is like going to give you a quest and then they fall over with a dagger in their back. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah, you started yeah. in a tavern, but it's not like what you thought, right? It's not the job board. And how cool if then later on you are called into a meeting and there's the same wizard, right? Wait, you had a knife in your back. Yeah. Have right. you solved my murder yet? I want to know who tried to kill me right. by the way. You know, I think I want to employ you. Like, you know, th th this is the kind of thing that could be so fascinating as you wait, who is this person who's em employing us? Right. Why are this ancient being what's going on here? Oh, right. it could be so cool. Yeah. And, and that also takes you from the, this just, it's just a random happenstance event that brought all the characters together to this is how we all came to serve this ancient being. Um, yeah. You know, he offered everyone something that they really wanted to work yeah. for him. So. I mean, that could be fun. You end one adventure with like 
you know, a genie and a lamp, right? Mm -hmm. And then now begins the campaign, right? The, the, the one shot ending is, is the beginning of the actual campaign or something, right? Like, yeah. Yep. And so like the uh, Academy, the ancient being gives you contacts, uh, operatives, roles within the uh, within the patron organization, the devotee, the infiltrator, the mouthpiece, the pupil, the guardian, the offspring, and so on. Uh, were there any other yeah. uh, any other ones that you wanted to delve into? They had the criminal syndicate, the guild, the military force, the religious order, and the sovereign. I think religious order is one that has a lot of rich potential, right? Undead hunters, devout scholars, relic collectors, charitable missionaries, militant inquisitors, doomsaying evangelists. Like, there's a lot here that you can. Uh, that can't, I mean, again, the campaign just starts writing itself as you start mm -hmm. thinking through just these possibilities and what could be going on. And, and that one's, that's, that's really rich. Um, but they, they all do. I, I, I thought puzzles was, was going to be my favorite thing in Tasha's when I started reading, but it really, it's, it's the group patrons and I'd skim them in the Ebron book, but really looking at them here in new light. Um, I just think they're, they're just fantastic, uh, concepts here. And, and if, if you had not read this piece, you deserve it to go back and read over this piece and think through how you can use it in a campaign. And I hope, and I've kind of been on this saying this a fair bit on social media, but Wizards Coast Centers creates awesome ideas and then you never see them in play. Mm -hmm. And I think that for a piece of design, what I'd call a subsystem, which patrons is sort of a subsystem that you can, you know, bring in or out. It's not core, uh, for it to have legs and have life and be thought about as a part of the design of the game, it has to show up. Mm -hmm. And so I would love to have seen that Rhyme of the Frost Maiden used patrons, right? Mm -hmm. Or that the next adventure, I hope, I hope an adventure in the near future uses a patron and applies this, these, these rules to it mm -hmm. um, so that we get downtime and we get this patronage system. Like, I think that would be a superb way to tell a long story the way that are in these big hardback books. So, yeah. 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 And w one other thing about patrons that we didn't mention, but it's very important, is that everything that we've talked about has sort of been story related, uh, except for that part at the beginning where this is the mechanical benefit you get. You can bring in your more, I don't want to say power gamer uh, players, but I'm going to say power gamer players. Uh, you can bring them into this by tying mechanical things to the patron. Oh, you want to use feats. Well, in order to get a feat, you have to learn the feat from someone at your patron, uh, you know, at your, at your group or, or someone associated with your patron who can teach you that feat. You get immediate buy-in then from those players. Even if they're not into the whole story, yeah. they appreciate their patron more when there is that sort of connection mechanically between their character and the patron. A lot of your power gamers and optimization players, they try to win with the rules because that's what they have at their disposal to try to win with, but you can mm -hmm. give them anything to win with, right? You can let mm -hmm. them win with skill checks or downtime or whatever. Right. Um, and that was some of the thought process behind franchises. And, and just like we said, like acquisitions incorporated can be a patron. Any of these patrons, can use 
the franchise rules from Acquisitions Incorporated, which allow you to gain levels within that organization, mm -hmm. right? You get your franchise levels and, and that area that's given to you for control, your sort of domain that's gifted by your, your patron, um, the default is Acquisitions Incorporated, but it can be any, it can be a criminalization, it can be a military force, mm -hmm. any of it. Um, that lets you gain levels and play this system as well as enjoy its story benefits. Right. So you can tie the two together and that gives the optimization person a lot to shoot for because they're like, all right, you know what? If we do this particular activity, we're going to do really well as a franchise and we're all right. going to gain the level and then I'll get this, you know, role right. benefit. And, and so it, that's a great way to yep. yeah, exactly. get everybody excited. Well, we, if we the can truth make, is, yeah. If we can make all this money at this yeah, at this downtime, then we can afford to pay our retainers to go do this. Oh, and I'm going to pay the armor that we yeah. hired to make our, my magical armor. Uh, it, it all ties together. Yep. yep. It all ties together. And because it has this story underpinning a really an overarching story, it, it's a whole, it's draped in that story. The story people are really happy when the optimization person is optimizing story stuff, right? Which is exactly right. what you're doing is you're putting story goals to be pushed forward, optimized, whatever. Yeah. And so everybody's winning, right? Because it, it th that optimizer can bring a lot of energy into that process and everybody's excited and that's mm -hmm. great. Yeah. So your patron, well, we should add that. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say that there is this, being your own patron, right? Yep. Section. Yeah. And it just basically talks about what you have to do, uh, what you have to think about if you let the characters uh, run their own crime syndicate, mercenary company, uh, arcane scholar collective, or so on. You know, when you're the boss, you have perks, but you also have the other consequences that come with, you know, running any organization. And if only there had been a book out there, Teos, that talked about running your own <laughs> large-scale business uh, that they could have referenced here. That would have been awesome. It's as if Wizards of the Coast doesn't know that the Acquisitions Incorporated book was written. I mean, let's be <laughs> honest. It's so funny that they link to the running a business downtime activity from the DMG when we created this way better version. Uh, but, yeah, it, it's. Uh, I, I think the running a business downtime activity in the dmg is actually very problematic but uh yeah yeah okay. you can use that you also can crack open your acquisitions incorporated book and use the uh yeah the rules there yeah but you know overall but it is funny it is yeah. very funny overall as we said you know use this as a dm use this concept of having a patron to to win all over the place, you know, to win in terms of story, to win in terms of mechanics, to win in terms of having all your players working toward the same goal, uh, and then using all the twists and turns uh, of of what this entity, this patron behind the scenes can bring. Is our patron really good? You know, it's the old CIA. Is there someone, is there a mole in the CIA doing evil? And we work for the CIA. We have to now investigate ourselves to find out, you know, all of those common tropes that we see in stories uh, with, with this monolithic so uh, organization. It's all, it's all great. So I'm super glad that this uh, was in the book again and DM's got a chance to uh, peruse it. Any other yeah, thoughts? So Sean, what do you think? Yeah. Well, with, with, uh, with uh, patrons done, Mm -hmm. uh, the only thing really we haven't covered in this book are sort of feats and spells 
and magic items like tattoos. And what do you think? Are you feeling like, is this the end of our Tasha's coverage? What do you think? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. There, yeah, I, okay. there, there, there's some, you know, a small part of me says it might be interesting to look, but a lot of the, these things are reprints uh, yeah. as well. So I don't know. Maybe we'll leave it a mystery to our listeners about what right. we're going to talk about next time. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe listeners can tell us whether they think, uh, do they want to see us cover this or kind of move on to the next piece? Yeah. What, what yeah. do you want us to cover next? Uh, there's lots of options out there. Mm -hmm. There's books that we have not yet had the chance to crack open and investigate. There are large scale topics that, you know, we could talk about in terms of players or in terms of design or, you know, just in terms of the business or hobby. Um, so let us know what you'd like to see where you can go onto Twitter and you can talk to us at mastering D N D. Or, you know, elsewhere you can talk to us. Where can they talk to you, Deus? Uh My phone number is, no. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at AlphaStream and uh, my blog, AlphaStream.org. Mm -hmm. And, Sean, how about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. You can go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com or go to that Twitter uh, handle at MasteringDND or... Become a patron, and if you're already a patron, thank you so much for the support. You can go to patreon.com slash MMP to support us and a couple other shows on the Misdirected Mark Network. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Teos, now that we have looked at patrons, what should we do now? Well, for the honor of House Griffin Horfenpickle, we are going to uh, go kill some monsters. See, I'm part of House Hassan Pfefferly Dunn. <laughs> <laughs>